Welcome. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. And tonight, another very interesting show, a great one, I hope, that's going to be dealing with the plant kingdom and the development of life. And, of course, this is going to be a show that deals with uh, elements of metaphysics and physics and biology in this particular situation, and also uh, astronomy and uh, some elements of what what we will eventually find in other worlds in terms of plant life and life on those planets that we think and eventually will find have life on them. The interesting part about tonight's show is it goes all over the place. We'll be out into the galaxy and other galaxies, and we'll be also uh, talking about things that happened a long time ago on this planet. Some of them not quite, uh, we'll say, fully uh, understood yet. And then uh, we'll also be discussing how plants affect us, humans, uh, and we're they are today in their development and how we're going to interact with them in the not-too-distant future, which includes us genetically changing them uh, and them eventually, uh, we'll say, having some uh, effects on all of uh, life on Earth. Now, they have, in the beginning, been the predominant issue, the predominant way that life has proceeded. Before there were plants uh, on Earth, there was life that was first, uh, we'll say, single cellular, and some of that life wasn't even animal or plant, but it was like a prototype of either. And uh, those uh, single-celled organisms are pretty much un misunderstood and not well-defined in today's, uh, we'll say, science. The reason for it is because we don't really have good examples of that kind of life any longer on Earth. Part of the, part of the reason for that is that the atmosphere of Earth is tremendously changed by plants, and before there were plants, uh, the way that life existed was uh, by running off of the energy, we'll say, of the Earth itself, coming out of volcanoes and oceans, etc. And then before you could even find life in that particular quarter, uh, life may have existed in some odder, more odd ways that would have been uh, around some shallow pools and some other places where it was... uh, will say, uh, a new kind of way of uh, interacting in energy between itself and the surroundings. We think of life as being somewhat separate from non-life in the base, on the basis that life can reproduce itself and can do so in ways that uh, replicates its uh, its means or ways of interacting with its environment, and that isn't uh, necessarily what uh, anything that we consider other than life, non-life, uh, to be able to do. Now, the interesting thing is the very first, the very first parts of life before there were actually plants, and these earliest types were uh, in and out of the existence of what we would call uh, pre-life and life itself, or n- 
non-organic into organic and from organic into chemistry-wise, into the ability to replicate itself. The first parts of life that probably existed were not very uh, good at replication. And you might say, well, is that life? And that is where we need to talk about the differences as defined today and what was probably the truth about what was happening at an earlier time. In order, now this is new stuff we're going to talk about now. So this is not part of the present system in biology or uh, we'll call paleobiology, where you go back in time and try to understand how things existed. The original kinds of life that are developed on many worlds, including Earth, are actually um, sort of a cross between what we call pre-life and life. And they make, on occasion, the chemistry uh, uh, becomes organic, meaning that we call that carbon-based in this world, but there could be other methods of organicity. And organic just means that it organizes itself, that's what (laughs) organizes itself into something that is capable of interaction uh, beyond uh, purely in uh, electrochemical processes. And the original sources of life uh, did so uniquely sometimes and were unable to reproduce the uniqueness and would change the environment a little bit. And we're talking about millions and millions of years of this going on. Uh, And as they did so, including their carcasses or the dead bodies of them, uh, this built up the ability for some of them to gain from what was the prior non, uh, we'll say, parts of uh, replicating life. So some parts of life, or pre-life, that were non-replicating were building up the ability to become replicating life, and they did so through a plan, and that plan was part of Earth's plan (laughs) on and how it was going to develop uh, itself into a life. And this process had to have been figured out way ahead of time, rather than through some random planning. And you can say, well, wait a second, you just said that one part builds up on the other part. Why isn't that possible to happen without there being, you know, with, without, with, with there being a plan only? Why could there be no plan? It just happened randomly over time. Okay, well, the answer to that is that there are models uh, of this suggested process. <clears throat> and those models do not uh, do not discriminate. They just say, okay, this is all the chemistry that could be available on the planet at the time. And let's put it all together and see how, uh, in random progression, how much time it would take for this particular process to develop into what we call a reproductive form of uh, of organism that is able to replicate itself sufficiently to become what we would consider, by our standards, a life form. And just to get from A to B, so to speak, is measured in billions of years. 
uh, sounds like an awful long time, you know. And I would agree that that seems like a long time. But uh, because of the sheer number of permutations in the advance, and because of the ability to go backwards as well as forwards in this developmental process, it doesn't always carry forward, actually. You can end up wiping out huge parts of pre-life in the process of development. It actually requires, um, unfortunately, uh, that much time. It's been calculated to be two or three billion years, but we know that life was created in two or three hundred million years and probably closer to one hundred million years. So, so there is a uh, there is a quagmire in that part of the equation. Then there's the other factor, that if there isn't a plan, this sort of thing would keep happening uh, here and there in the world, and with our present means of abilities, we should be able to discover it. And we haven't found it happening in the order. So now we begin to see that the processes that began in pre-life to develop life were curtailed. And not through uh, any means that we can't comprehend right now, which would, would explain it in some reasonable way. So on both sides of this equation, it doesn't quite, it doesn't work out virtually at all in the time model or in the concept model that uh, we would be able to see it's still going on and isn't going on to this time. Now, that's a most interesting observation, the most interesting part of trying to determine uh, the question of how life begins on a planet. Well, let's assume that for right now, the best explanation is one in which there's a plan, which, of course, is what this show is about, and that plan is to develop life and to do so by starting with pre-life or things that cannot reproduce themselves in ways that organize their world and allow them to exchange energy in a way that is positive or uh, that doesn't lead to entropy and destruction of what would have been a life form. So in other words, you have to have a positive development uh, instead of entropy, and that means something has to be moving forward in its development to not die out from entropy. Because entropy is the normal process of of non-life processes. In other words, if you take any any uh, energy equation with any elements that you won't choose, you end up with a process of entropy. But life doesn't do that. Life is able to overcome the entropy model and it's able to organize and eventually develop a positive development of uh, energy and uh, growth. All right, so that's before we had plants. We're talking about the beginnings of the cell, beginnings of something that resembles something like a cell. What Then what happens, uh, if we're going again back in her history, is that some of these cells differentiate themselves. And they do so using models that um, include incorporating some of the other differentiations from themselves 
into themselves so that you get a mixture. Isn't that weird? Huh? So you have something that looks a little bit like an animal, something that looks a little bit like a plant, something that looks a little bit like a fungus or something like that, or a bacteria. And uh, they can intermingle. And particularly in the case of viruses, it may be true that the addition of certain viral types of material may have uh, changed the nature of some basic cells. Now, we're starting to differentiate. Now, why do things differentiate? Well, again, you have to go to the plan. Differentiation in life has to do with the field of life becoming more and more uh, complex and the growth of God, therefore, uh, increasing with uh, the complexity of uh, life. So it's very important, uh, therefore, if you have a plan that you want to grow God, which is what the plan is about, uh, then you need to be able to do so using uh, a method which we call differentiation. And sure enough, life almost by every means you can imagine differentiates regardless of the cost of life in terms of overall survivability, which goes against our, our usual thinking about in, in this world, at least, uh, uh, about evolution. Uh, the evolutionary model says that a successful form of life would continue to not necessarily differentiate. As a matter of fact, it would uh, it would keep developing to become dominant over other life, and uh, eventually differentiation would decline, and uh, you would end up with the most dominant forms of life being what populates an environment. That isn't what actually happens, though. Instead, going back to the very earliest cells we can find, not the ones that I started with, but the ones right after that, uh, we find that the cells first multiply and look pretty similar for a while, and then they start to differentiate. And the differentiation moves into processes that are more difficult and do not necessarily prove or lead to the proven that they would survive better with the environment that was at hand. Now, here's the interesting part about it. Eventually, the life itself changes the environment drastically. I'll give you an example. Uh, certain types of uh, bacteria gave off uh, certain types of gases that eventually changed the atmosphere to allow there to be plants. And in order for that type of development to have taken place, you had to know ahead of time that that's where you're headed to because once you reach a certain point in this development, the older stuff, the older types of life are dying out and you're differentiating it into a type of life that is going to need eventually the changes in the atmosphere. How did they know that? <laughs> I mean, who figured it out and who decided when it was going to happen? I mean, it gets a little... You know, that's why I say we've got to look at this as a, as a more broad picture to our understanding that have been promulgated by most of the biological scientists these days. Okay, so looking at how the system works, it now seems that differentiation is a preferred and almost necessary issue. It becomes almost the model for all life, 
although there's some life that seems not to differentiate very much. And I write about that in the textbook I, uh, I wrote about, how some life is deliberately kept to remain pretty consistent in the same and chooses not to differentiate in the face of most life differentiating broadly. And that life is necessary to keep certain parts of life consistent for each new type of life so that there was a reserve of the consistency of things that had worked before to be relied upon if necessary. It's very fascinating how it works. And that's because life is being changed by outside forces called race. And those rays are stimulating certain parts of the life to develop more under certain circumstances. Fascinating idea. But, okay, so we have a plan. We have outside external forces. And uh, eventually life differentiates into what we construe to be plant. Now, what is a plant life compared to an animal life? Well, a plant, uh, by definition, uh, does not have the ability to become, we'll say, in any uh, significant way mobile on its own accord, and it doesn't have an operating nervous system. It can move in very, very, very small, meager ways uh, over long periods of time, but it can't... Uh, react in, in the immediate sense to its uh, environment on a, we'll call it anything other than an extremely specialized basis. I mean, like a Venus flytrap, well, well, that's snap closed, but uh, it can't modify that behavior based upon the environment around it. It just does it when something stimulates a certain molecule part of it to do that but it's still missing what we would call a nervous system to give it better feedback. It doesn't have a brain, and it is not an operable type of, we'll say, animated thing, and that's where the word animal comes from. So plants are differentiated from that, and they don't have that. But they have something that's really, really important, and that is they are far better at interacting closer to the level that I call the chemistry or biochemistry side of the life spectrum. Plants are uh, over uh, eons of time capable of reacting to the environment on a much more basic biochemical level than humans. And it doesn't matter what kind of animal we're actually talking about. It's sort of like you trade off. You give up you give up this interaction on a biochemical in a biochemical way in major ways uh, that plants do to gain the nervous system and anim- animated behavior that allows instantaneous and uh, varied reactions to the environment and it, it allows the animal freedom to do many things but it is going to not be able to do the thing that's so very important which is to biochemically manufacture many different types of organic compounds and changes within the world. And plants do do that. And so plants become the basis for how life is able to, we'll say, survive in a world. If you don't have plants, uh, animals would fairly quickly find it impossible to live not only would they not have a, a, a 
a food source at the base of their food chain, but they would further um, not have other kinds of biochemistry going on. Uh, even their waste would eventually build up and be destructive. There's all kinds of things that happen. Now, there are other parts of life that work with plants that are in between kingdoms, and those are like bacteria and fungi. And they sort of take on some of the additional characteristics that plants have, but they support those characteristics, and sometimes they do a better job. Bacteria are great at breaking down uh, mostly uh, dead organic uh, products. And fungi are particularly good at doing some of the same for plant byproducts. And plant, a dead plant, so they have their role too. So when you put put this all together, each part of the life spectrum is uh, doing something important. Bacteria and fungi and molds are part of the sub-kingdoms, in-between kingdoms of life. They are not a separate kingdom in and of themselves. Um, and uh, the microorganisms that we're familiar with, and some that have died out a long time ago, those microorganisms were also a, effectively a sub-kingdom. They never quite made it into a full kingdom of life. And they are the bridge between pre-life and life itself. So now we're getting some better order to this whole thing. We're starting to see how it all kind of fits together. Now, the interesting thing about Earth is that it's an unusual planet. It has a third-ray focus. And what's so important about that is that plants have a third-ray focus. They actually uh, are kind of aligned with what the third-ray is about. And what is the third-ray? Well, it, it changes life all at the same time almost. And it produces uh, the ability for life to power itself, which means it can interact through the energy model, while at the same time it is following a plan for life. So this all fits in with everything I just described as the plant kingdom. And the plant kingdom basically is functioning along the third ray, and the Earth is focused on the third ray as being its primary way of developing life, so plants become the most important of the kingdoms on Earth, and um, they tend to do better on Earth than some other uh, dense physical planets, which is a good thing because they're very hardy here. They have, have a preeminent position, and they accelerate the development of life. Any planet that's along the third ride is meant for speed. It will be the fastest planet to develop life on because it accelerates the plant kingdom, and the plant kingdom has all these great features to it that allows it itself to accelerate the development of life. So it's a fascinating model. The odd thing about it, though, is the third ray is not the most, uh, we'll say, frequently used ray to develop the planet uh, because speed has some negative sides to it. The faster you grow things, the more the conflictive aspects of force between life, because the speed of the differentiation of life is really fast. And when you have a lot of life differentiating very quickly, you wind up with greater levels of forces, uh, at least until you get somewhere into advanced humanity. And so, unfortunately, on planets such as Earth, 
force. It enforces causes, early death, a lot of destruction, uh, sometimes uh, destruction even of human civilization because it's dependent upon the third ray as well. So all of this gets uh, gets into the equation. And a lot of planets aren't designed along uh, being a focus of the third ray because of just that fact that things differentiate too quickly, they, they grow too fast, and uh, it doesn't allow sufficient time for there being a balance in life, for there being a consciousness developed equally, for there to be, um, we'll say, a, a plan that is carried through without a lot of potential destructive elements from forces. And that's why Earth is a tough place to be. At least one reason, anyway. It's not the only one. But it certainly puts us in the forefront. And there's other planets that are dense, that have third ray. But Earth has all kinds of other quirky things about it. Uh, it, uh, it not only has uh, its plant kingdom developed to very quickly into a very high level of development, uh, but with high differentiation. But it also um, relies upon uh, heavily upon eventually in its development a third ray atmosphere of oxygen, and it's because of plants that that's true. Now oxygen speeds things up like crazy. Oh my! And it mostly does it for animals, surprisingly. More than even plants. Uh, it uh, plants do grow larger, but the animals grow proportionately larger and faster. And it will speed up the differentiation of the animals and make them more aggressive and more hostile and a lot of other stuff. So you get in because your metabolisms are just much quicker. Heck, when oxygen was up to forty percent of our atmosphere, which is about almost half that today, uh, we had insects. You know. The size of uh, medium-sized animals, <laughs> giant insects, uh, because they grew so large and they differentiated very quickly and they became extremely forceful. They would kill each other and kill anything else. And they were as dangerous as any animals of the time that were running around there. And they had, uh, a, a, they, their size was enormous, their capabilities were enormous. Their consciousness did not grow. Because remember, when you end up with a lot of forces, it conflicts so much it could diminish consciousness. And that's exactly what happened. But luckily, of course, over time, uh, 40% oxygen in the atmosphere is very dangerous. I mean, it causes vast forest fires, destruction of huge amounts of all kinds of life, including plant life. And it left the world in a, in a very bad place. And if to well, just uh, five to ten million years, it, it couldn't sustain itself, and it started to diminish. But nonetheless, nonetheless, that's what Earth turned into, and uh, that was all part of the design to accelerate everything. It's like we're on the speed track, you know. We just got to go as fast as we're going to go, even if you got to have a 40% oxygen atmosphere, which is crazy. I mean, in 40% of the atmosphere, if you light a match, the light will burn your finger off. Seriously. Uh, because things, 
oxidize. They burn so fast, the energy moves so quickly from oxygen that you just can barely control anything. And that's what was going on. All right, so this is this is Earth. Now, if we, let's take some other examples. Let's take a quick look at them. We'll go we can go more on this later in the show. But a planet could have and does a plant kingdom, which is again along the third right. And it might the planet itself though might be developing along the sixth right. Well, Mars did that. And interestingly, when when you do that sort of thing, if you switch switch around the ray focus, you end up with a lot of differences in the way plant life develops. Using Mars as an example, although it's it has a lot of other factors that go into the equation. Smaller planet, guys, a big factor. It wasn't uh, it wasn't able to hold its heat as long, and it's further from the sun, so it cooled off more. That was its biggest challenge. And the planet life that developed on, on Mars developed more slowly. It had uh, a, a heck of a time trying to maintain the atmosphere on a planet where the uh, gravity wasn't holding it down. The solar wind was buffering it and hitting it hard and destroying it. And Mars's electromagnetic field was dropping much faster than Earth's that deflected the solar wind. Even though it was further away, it didn't protect it because it was just getting too weak too fast. Because it, what causes the, the electromagnetic field is the inside core or cores, actually, one's more liquid and one's more solid, they revolve around each other and create this field, and in Mars, they were cooling down so fast because of its smaller size that the field dropped very quickly, and even though the solar wind was diminished to some extent compared to Earth, it was enough to knock off the atmosphere. Wow, that's so good. And so you end up with this, this odd combination on a planet that uh, it's supposed to eventually interact with Earth. Now, you might say, well, how come and what's going on? Well, it did develop some plant life, and it did develop even lower animal life. But unfortunately, it couldn't sustain that system because it was in the wrong place to continue. And it wasn't supposed to. We're supposed to do something about Mars in our future. That's a whole other story. So there's an example that that plants uh, don't necessarily do so well on other kinds of wave-focused planets, and also when they change in size. Now, there are planets out there that we will eventually discover that have uh, plants on them, and may not have full oxygen uh, atmospheres as we have, but plants can live in other kinds of atmospheric conditions. They will grow very differently and use different means of taking in and out uh, elements such as carbon. There may not be a carbon cycle that they're using. And uh, they may not grow as fast, and they may not uh, develop life as quickly in their world but it may be more stable, and it may be less differentiated, so there's less forces that it develops that causes problems for it. And it's kind of a trade-off. You know, you 
can say, well, that plant's going to take another five or ten million years before you even see humans on it. Maybe, maybe even fifty million or hundred million. It doesn't sound like much about a planet that's four and a half billion years old, but if you're trying to do a lot of stuff in the solar system or in a galaxy, so certain things aren't going to happen at a certain time, that can play with the whole situation unless it's planned for and ready. And of course, it usually is. Plants play a role everywhere they go in terms of supporting life. They are like the foundation of life. But the way they support life is very different depending upon the focus of the rain that the planet is under and the size and position of the planet in relationship to the sun. And that is something we have yet to understand. And as we understand it more, we'll be able to find more planets because we'll know where and why to look for them in certain places. Isn't that fascinating? And... Uh, there's also other characteristics that are unknown about how plants uh, exist, or not very well known, such as things that deal with uh, prana and uh, the kundalinis, and especially the first, uh, uh, called chi in some circles, that plants are very involved with, which we'll talk about in tonight's show. Those things are critical if you're going to start talking about what is that, that plants contribute. And it's so important because it's the more metaphysical side. You know, as I said, tonight's going to be big and metaphysics of life. I'm starting off with a lot of science, but it's uh, in physics without metaphysics. But we, we're going to be talking a lot about metaphysics tonight because plants are more metaphysical than they are, than they are physics and biology. The biology part of plants, even in, in and of itself, is misunderstood. But the metaphysical part is almost completely misunderstood in science, at least in Western science. So that part remains a mystery, and hopefully we won't have such a mystery tonight with it. And it should be fun, because we should talk about things that will be practical, eventually, or already are, and we may not fully understand how so. And that's another way that we will probably explore this subject. The last thing, before we go to break, I want to mention about plants is that um, they are still changing here on Earth. And remember, they are differentiating still at a faster pace uh, than they would on most other planets. So we can expect uh, an interesting future for our plants, uh, one which is going to shock people tonight, because plants aren't going to always be the way they are today. As a matter of fact, they will be modified by humans. And they will become something different than what and who they are today. And we will have an interesting future with our plants. So much so that I think we can even almost say that uh, at some point uh, we will have a relationship with plants that will surprise and even shock the majority of people. And that's coming not a thousand years from now. But maybe within the next time. So that's a that's of such a such a fast magnitude to consider. The reason for it is that we are beginning to become aware of genetics, and I have you know a lot of interest and background uh, recently in genetics. And the genetic issues 
uh, plants are easier to um, understand than they are in animals because animals have that ability to have a nervous system removed. Plants don't. Plants work slower, which allows human beings to become more interactive with their genetic structure and how to change it in ways that keeps the plant alive, of course, without destroying it, than they can with animals. Animals are very complicated, and uh, even though we may be geniuses with genetics in 20 or 30 years, our ability to change plants will be more accurate and better by far than it will be for animals, or, and especially people. We're going to try to use it on people, but uh, we've got a little bit of have a longer road to hoe, and it'll be more difficult for us to be successful than we will with plants. Isn't that fascinating? I love that idea. And so plants become our workshop for uh, understanding genetic changes, uh, good or bad, and I'm not saying all of them by any search are good, and what we're going to be likely able to do, and some of the things that will be good or bad, and we'll talk about those differences, and what it may mean to our planet and maybe to some other surrounding planets, such as Mars. We don't have to leave those planets exactly as they are, as I've talked about in recent other shows. And we could change them in various ways so they promote more life and uh, even support human life. So it could all be coming together. And plants are the, uh, are the foundation of the circumstance. And that's assuming we don't do too much to change what's supporting plants, which is, of course, bacteria and molds and, and, and fungi. Because they're interacting with plants, and we don't want to be doing something that's totally destructive to that sub-kingdom because it could upset the kingdom of plants. We have to be very careful we don't do something so destructive to plants that we affect all life because plants are the basis. And if we were to mess them up, we could mess up everything. Everything. That's a lie. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a break right now. We started about a minute late, so we're kind of moving everything up a little by a minute. And we'll be back, uh, give or take, in about two and a half minutes from right now. Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet, I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower. M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. 
Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the whys, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. We're back. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. And uh, tonight we're talking about the plant kingdom and the, and the development of life. Uh, in specific terms, I'm talking about Earth, but we're also covering other worlds. What the heck? Might as well get them in there while we can. And uh, I find plants to be some of the most interesting kinds of life because they interact so well with pre-life and because they are such good, we'll call it energy uh, converters. <laughs> uh, because they're the third ray, that's what it's about. It's power, it's the ability to, to, to move energy back and forth. And we don't realize it, but plants are the major energy movers on Earth. That's what they're doing. And of course, the sun is the biggest energy factor, but I'm talking about what life on Earth is doing, and it's, uh, it's plants that are the big movers and shakers in that in, in world. People think that animals are, but they're really almost an afterthought compared to what plants are doing. All right, so uh, let's go back into what I was saying. And that is that we're going to be now, uh, for the first time, humans are going to start uh, in what hopefully will be an intelligent way, uh, changing plants specifically with the idea, anyway, of uh, improving them I guess, uh, hopefully. Now, uh, in the last, uh, let's say, 30, 40 years, that has not been the case. Uh, the quote-unquote early attempts at genetic engineering of plants has been pretty much more negative than positive. Well, why is that? Well, it's called genetic modified, you know, organisms, and we're trying to we're trying to change plants for the world. Purposes. I mean, if you try to change a plant because you want to make a few more bucks, but it makes everybody sick in the process, or you know, makes the plant sick, or both, uh, that's probably not going to do anybody any good, and it uh, ends up in some significant damage to civilization and to plants. Civilizations along the third ray, and so are plants, is the base of it. So they're intimately connected. 
what kinds of things could we do that would be better if we were going to, to see if we could make them better? And the answers to that are the following. First of all, you need to understand what plants really are here for and not interfere with that part of life. So you don't want to start messing with plants just like, well, then we can do it so we will. You know? <laughs> make make plants so that they don't die when we spray toxic forms of poison around them that kills other plants like weeds and, um, or bugs. And, and this is so crazy if you think about it because when you do that sort of stuff, then they become able to absorb these toxins and then we eat the plants or things that eat them and we become toxified by the poison that has now been able to be resisted by the plant in its ability to grow, but it loses nutrient value while it becomes loaded with poison. Huge problem. And uh, that type of genetic modification is really bad and is actually being done, as I speak, in here in the United States and a number of other places. Some places have banned this sort of thing, but not, not the U.S. actually. And the reason you don't want to do that sort of stuff is because it's all for bad purposes. The motive is, is totally neglectful of what plants are really here for, and it, uh, it literally kills us in the process and a lot of other life. What sorts of things would be good? I mean, what can we do that would make plants you know, a, a, a better uh, form of life? Well, the other the thing we can do would be to help plants to grow in ways that helps the world around the plant to improve and keeps the plant pretty much healthy and alive, but doesn't make it uh, resistant to toxins and poisons because we want to use those poisons to kill other plants that we don't like that are stealing nutrients from the plants we do like. Instead, we'd be better off uh, genetically modifying the plants we do like to being able to compete better against the plants we don't like that are taking certain food and energy away from the plants we do like. And we could, if we were careful, genetically modify the plants we don't like to become nicer and less destructive and less stealing. And that's what we call weeds or pesty plants. We can change them so they wouldn't be as pesty and weedy, but we don't want to eliminate them because those plants are changing certain chemistries in the earth and the plant and the animals around them, and they're doing things that we have to first become cognizant of. Otherwise, we can hurt the entire environment through ignorance. And believe me, that's entirely possible with genetic engineering as it is today. So you've got to be really understanding, conscious of what plants are doing, even the ones you don't like, so that you don't end up screwing everything up and making the world a mess. And that could easily happen with our, we'll call it infantile level of understanding of genetics applied to a relatively sophisticated life form called a plant and uh, it would be even worse, or will be even worse, when we do this with animals and people.
So we better get it right with plants first, or we're in for the worst of it. So, and plants are the basis of life, so we want to be very careful about how we do this. Now, it, it is definitely possible to improve uh, plants. So I don't want you to think I'm saying that throw out the baby with the bathwater business. We, don't, we, we need to use what we understand and grow things better, but for the right purposes, and to be extremely careful and seeing life as, as precious as it is and recognize that we can possibly be if God and all of God's parts hadn't already created what we got because it's because of plants that we're here at all. So we've got to, we've got to be really careful about this. The, the, the unfortunate issue here is the long-term effects. So um, we're really short-term, short-sighted in our ability to determine the long-term effects of things. And so that's where this has got to be carefully done. Now, some of that care will require uh, doing very controlled experiments and making absolutely certain we're not just messing up the world and do it in a very slow, progressive way so that we can see if, in fact, there is a, an improvement or we've goofed and there's some kind of serious problem. Some of this is going to have to be uh, consciously chosen by people who want to do the right thing. I'm not suggesting legislation here. I'm suggesting education and that we bring the level of consciousness of people up to a high enough standard so on an average, uh, even though there might be still some goofy, crazy people doing some terrible genetic things, that most people won't do it because they don't like it. They think it's bad and they won't. And they are concerned about life overall. That would be terrific if we can get to that. Red legislation is not really a good thing because government, when it restricts, does so with a sledgehammer. What we need here is the finesse of very slight differences between this particular procedure and that particular procedure in order to progress in ways that isn't harmful but allows civilization to grow, which is the use of plants, includes the use of plants in all the different ways that they are used. It's extremely important also from the standpoint that it's going to happen anyway. So I don't think, if you tried to legislate this, I don't think it could be successful because you would probably develop a whole new kind of anti-governmental regulation industry not too different from some kinds of drug culture things, but this would be about plants and stuff. And people would start doing things that would be more in, more dark because they are following the dark side to avoid the regulation. So I don't like regulation for the most part. I prefer education where people get the understanding of how the whole thing is connected together, that's consciousness again, and through those connections, they want to preserve the values that life provides, including that of plant life. Okay, so well, it's really fascinating when you think about it. And to me, if we're going to proceed that way, then 
And I think that this sort of stuff should be taught very young, to the young, very young. And they should have some understanding of it as they're growing up. I'm talking about between the ages of like 6 and 12. It would be appropriate to teach kids a little bit about plant life <laughs> and genetics and how plants contribute to life overall and what they do and that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, there's very little organic chemistry that is dealt with until you get to really the last few years of high school and then college. Uh, unfortunately, most of the chemistry, if you can call it that, that is taught in, in biology, that is taught in grade school and even early high school, does not get very much into the real intricacies of what life is and especially the aspect of organic chemistry and organic life. So you, you get very little of that, and so people just don't understand it. And unless they go into advanced courses, they may never get it. That's unfortunate because it's needed in order to get to where we're talking about going. And it's needed to include the concepts of virtue and enlightenment in the process. And then you have to get to what I'm going to be covering now, which is metaphysics. You see, what we've dealt with so far has been pretty much science, as we understand it, in biology, with some other fringe parts of biology put in. But there's plants, has, plants have a whole other side to them. They take in pranic energies from the sun. And it's not, I'm not just talking about photosynthesis, uh, although photosynthesis is part of the process, but part of that process is hidden by a type of, uh, we'll call it etheric, uh, solar energies, there are seven types, that plants use to create seven kinds of pranic energy. Now, the pranic energy that comes from the sun and is incorporated inside the plant. Uh, well, not every plant uh, works on all seven of the pranic, pranas, and some of them specialize in one or two of them. Uh, so the reason you want to eat a variety of plants and have a great many types of plants available is because if you were to only get one kind of prana, you tend to become ill, i.e., so if you take or eat only one or two or three kinds of plants all your life or for a long period of time, uh, you develop illnesses. And the reason you do is you're getting too much of one kind of prana and not enough kind of illness. And uh, so you have to have a variety of plants. And then you can say, well, I don't eat my plants, I know. Well, then you got to have a variety of animals that, unfortunately, you're eating, or the byproducts of animals, which aren't so bad, you know, like milk and eggs and cheese. But those things also specialize in certain pranic energies. And if you don't, if you don't mix them up, you may become an imbalance in the pranas you get from them. And you might say, well, what's so big about this prana business? All of a sudden, you know, we're talking about plants, and I understood that. Now you're off on pranaville. What is the prana? The prana is the primary source of energy for life. We think the energy from plants is what keeps us alive because we don't know that it is just the burning of the energy in the plant to create physical, uh, physical movement that is what we're talking about plants. 
plants as a source, or if it's an animal that eats plants, or an animal that eats other animals that eat plants, still comes from plants. And we think that it's just, oh, it's all the same, we're just burning it, yeah. No, no. Prana is something entirely different. It feeds, okay, the uh, energy sphere parts of our centers. And we have, uh, the majority of our centers are only energy spheres, like about everything except for seven centers are energy spheres, and the prana feeds all those energy spheres, and if we don't eat, we don't get the energy for the sun to go into those energy spheres. Now, why can't humans just sort of be like a plant and put out our leaves and stand out in the sun for a few hours and get prana? Well, we gave that up the way all animals did, so that we can become animated and eventually have a very sophisticated nervous system and brains and thinking and all the other stuff in itself. All those things that we developed, we gave up and decided that plants were better at taking care of that part of us. So we consumed either the plants or other things that ate the plants. That's how we live. We get the prana from them. Now, why don't why doesn't modern science know about plants being the major collectors of prana and all this? Well, it depends what science you're talking about. You go to the Eastern world, and they seem to get it. India, they know about prana. China, know about prana. Even the Japanese know about prana. Why don't we know about prana? Well, because we refuse to accept that which we can't put a hammer to. And prana, you can't put a hammer to. It's it's etheric, meaning it's electromagnetic. But prana, all prana, is a form of what is known as life energy. And all life energy, uh, this is life energy coming from the sun now, all life energy has a phase. That's a, that means the, the direction of the energy is different than electromagnetic energy that does not support life, which is, the electromagnetic energy from uh, radio waves and uh, every other electromagnetic source we're familiar with. Those kinds of energy sources do not support life, and as a matter of fact, they take life if you get too much of them, whereas prana does the opposite because of a phase difference in its value. Maybe at the same frequency, but a different phase. It has to be at a different phase in order to enter the plant and be stored by the plant, which eventually enters us and is stored in us. Our spleen does a lot of that, by the way. And we do have the ability to slightly absorb small amounts of prana, by the way. Uh, And that's only if you've already eaten enough prana. If you get a little sunlight, it can't hurt you, and it it could help you. Uh, if the prana is available at the time and needed. Now, other kinds of parts of the uh, electromagnetic band that the sun puts out, particularly ultraviolet light, can be very harmful to us at the same time we're getting prana, so we have to be careful to screen out or not get too much of the ultraviolet because a lot of those, and that's like anywhere from 260 nanometers all the way to about 400 nanometers, you want to stay out of that range of light spectrum called ultraviolet to near-ultraviolet light. And, and the reason is that those spectrums tend to produce 
uh, radiation, which is at the wrong phase to prana, and it blocks prana and leads to the destruction of cellular tissue. We call it sunburn, which eventually could lead to malignancies and other problems. But ultimately, it is understanding that there are different phase values to the same frequency of, of electromagnetic energies. That's what's missing in our present understanding in Western science. And so we don't get what plants are doing because we don't know that they have a selective process of absorbing certain uh, pranas at uh, certain phase relationships of electromagnetic energy coming from the sun. And in some cases, some plants are, are quite good at actually using some of the higher uh, ultraviolet bands up from about 340 up to uh, 390 nanometers. They can uh, use that energy pretty effectively uh, where we can't at all. And they can actually, there's parts of that electromagnetic band where they can select the, the pranas that work at the correct phase out of those bands, and they have some shelter from the rest of the phases in certain surface material that they have in their cells. That's amazing that they can do it. So they have like a natural sun protective uh, value to them. In Europe, they're using some of that, the ingredients for some of those plants, to help uh, make new kinds of sun lotions uh, here in the States. We haven't approved them yet, so we're not using them all yet. But we will in the future. All right, so the interesting thing about this is that there's there's this whole magical-like world around us that we don't know anything about that plants live in. And that's why we're so confused about them and why we better understand this stuff before we start genetically altering them and maybe make plants so they can't take in prana. That would be why I'm teaching this show tonight, because we're almost there, you know, I mean, some goofy person someplace is going to say, oh man, we can really get twice as much corn if we just make the leaves of this corn, uh, you know, not vibrating to this strange energy that it's doing, it's wasting its time and energy on that energy, except that energy is what keeps us alive, and uh, it might be good for, for making ethanol for cars, but terrible for making people and animals and more plants. Wow. Okay. That has some some interesting thoughts to it in itself. All right, so there's seven kinds of prana. Most plants kind of specialize in just a couple of them, two, three, and those. Uh, some plants specialize in only one as strange as that missing, depending upon where the plant grows. And the areas where plants are getting the fewest amount, lowest amount of, um, of light, you get some interesting types of pranas in those plants, some types that are very important for human beings. And we have not exploited that well enough yet because we don't understand what it is we're even dealing with. So that's another clue for people who are listening to them. So, okay, then there's something else that's going on with plants, and they aren't just working off of prana, because that's coming from the sun. Now, the sun is a kind of masculine kind of energy. What does that have to do with it? 
Well, it's a kind of energy that causes things to grow. And growth is good for the most part. So you want to have prana in children, lots of prana. You want to have prana in people that, for one reason, are growing, pregnant women, probably a goodly amount of prana. And so prana is a very good thing for growing purposes more than sustaining and healing. Okay? But there's another type of energy that plants also absorb, again, at a different phase, and sometimes different frequencies, but mostly different phases from chronic phases. And those energies are inverted, and they literally are inverted in, in, in phase many times from the pranic energy, and they're called the kundalini energies, and specifically the first kundalini, sometimes uh, in, 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 if you go to Sanskrit, it's called Pingala, but if you deal with it in more uh, Chinese, modern terms, it's called Qi. Now, the Qi uh, is the first of the Kundalini's, and it is what keeps energy moving and balancing itself with other energies in different centers within an organism. Plants are great at absorbing cheese. And again, there are different kinds of chi energy. So you get into the sub, what is known as sub levels of chi. There are seven sub levels of chi that work with seven different types of raid centers. And each chi, and its sub level of chi, is uh, going out to affect uh, whether or not a center will hold on to a certain amount of prana or let go of it. So it affects the growth rate. It's sort of like a trigger for growth. And it's a healer. Uh, When a center has way too much prana or not enough prana, in either case, the chi tries to balance that out by bringing energy from other centers that have the opposite effect and uh, that but still have the same either ray or or composite counter ray to it, and you can balance out the system. Actually, this system, uh, which is devised from the use of plants, it's called Pai Chi, and uh, was invented by uh, the group that I'm a part of. We actually invented this whole thing as a science in the last uh, 20 uh, or 30 years. And so the process is uh, significant because it explains how and why things like acupuncture works, feng shui works. All this stuff is sort of based upon chi. But plants in particular have both sides of the fence. They have the prana and they have the chi. So plants really just uh, shine in terms of their energy uh, balance and containment and use. They are amazing life. And if you put the right combination together of plants, sometimes the, so when they're used in small quantities that, that concentrate the products and the cheese, they're called herbs. And the, the herbs themselves are healing in nature. Sometimes they supply growth. Sometimes they reduce growth in things that you don't want to grow, maybe like a cancer of some sort. And sometimes they provide important elements that supply hormones, which are communicating agents inside the physical body, 
So this is an amazing thing that plants do. And without them, life could not sustain itself. Um, a lot of people say, well, why can't we just live off of this uh, bunch of soup and these type of uh, uh, various cans of food and stuff? Well, they start diminishing as soon as they're, you know, uh, processed in both tea and prana. So fresh food is way better. And freezing diminishes its, uh, food but it's, in, in, in similar ways. So the, the confinement, the containment of food is difficult because the processes we do use today uh, remove some of the prana and chi from the food. The fresher the food, the better the uh, amounts in proper balance uh, of these energies that you get. Uh, and you have to eat lots of other food, therefore, to stay healthy, which is another factor. So when people eat a lot of frozen and canned foods uh, over time, if that's the main thing they eat, they may tend to gain weight because they eat more of the same food to get, to get equal to or less than the product that we get from the special food. Uh, so this is an interesting problem, and it's very, very uh, Serious here in the United States, but it's it's part of the, the wrong conditions of civilization. It's better to refrigerate rather than to freeze. Freezing uh, reduces, uh, particularly the chi and prana, because it uh, changes the phase of the electromagnetic energy by lowering the temperature so much that the energy values which are the amplitude, start having a cross-purpose to the, to the um, frequencies and to the phases. So you end up with uh, lowered amplitude affecting the other two conditions of energy and uh, screwing up the quality of the energy in the food. Now, there's a thing called freeze-dried, which is very fast, uh, and that has shown itself to be better than keeping things frozen at like zero Fahrenheit or something like that because it's less uh, destructive. And so if you're going to choose something, freeze-dried things are probably better than keeping things frozen. Also, time is a factor. The longer you keep something frozen, the more the detriment to the prana and chi. And that's totally unknown to modern physical science as far as I know. Isn't that weird? But we know that if you keep things frozen for a long time, they lose their flavor and become nutritionally uh, bad. But nobody knows why. <laughs> that's the part that's missing, misunderstood. And people go, oh, because it gets freezer burned. Well, what if you wrap it and you keep all the oxygen away and you still don't find that it works? Right, right. So there's some other values that we're not familiar with that we need to, and that's what tonight's show is doing, is bringing those into play, all right, so plants have, uh, uh, the need for consumption of plants is uh, we need to find better ways of preserving chi and prana in plants. There are some. I'm going to bring them up in tonight's show. But, but right now, the present methods are barbaric and not very effective, except for freeze-drying, which isn't too bad. And uh, refrigeration for moderate periods of time is okay. But the longer the time you refrigerate, the worse the, worse the situation is. 
Wow. Now, there's another relationship between uh, chi and prana in plants, and that is when the balance between chi and prana uh, in the plant goes on. The plant becomes uh, uh, loose from what is known as a neutral position in terms of uh, acid and base, you know, uh, to becomes greater and greater in levels of acidity. And that's true also if it becomes contaminated with bacteria or a lot of other factors. And all of that is related to the strange imbalance between the prana and the chi. If you keep the prana and chi in balance, uh, bacteria can't eat the plant, can't eat the plant after it's been picked or used, and so it stays fresh very long. And if you can keep the, them in balance, and I'm going to suggest a way in a minute, don't worry about it. I mean, if you can keep them in balance long enough for a long enough period of time, you wouldn't have to worry about freezing the food. You wouldn't have to worry about uh, packaging it, trying to get all the oxygen out, adding nitrogen in. You've heard of nitrogen in packaging, which helps to some extent. And um, uh, even, you know, freezing won't be necessary. Dry freezing. Freeze drying necessarily. What can you do? Well, we need to come up with a device which is not very complicated that figures out and sets uh, a field up around our food that we store uh, that works in accord with the seven subrays that are in the plant of prana and, and uh, chi. And by plant, we create a field around that plant that protects those particular subrays in the plant from diminishing, and further, we keep them balanced together. And we could keep food for months or possibly years without any other form of preservation. Seriously. No chemicals, no PHT, none of this or that. Literally, we could do this just by changing the field, a field, of prana and etheric energies around the plant and keep it from degrading. There will be no, and bacteria will not be able, and fungus will not be able to grow on the plant because the plant material. Or, and this could be true, by the way, I hate to say it, of meat as well. Uh, you could do this in any kind of food. And we could keep food in a pristine state by just electromagnetically changing the phase mostly the things of the field, and get it to be proper. And uh, there would be some, as I said, there's some amplification issues that come into play, so we might be adding some energy around it besides just changing the thing. But at any rate, we could have feedback from the food itself telling us uh, what needs to be done, and our electronic equipment could be constantly regulating it so the plant stays in this perfect condition, it would not go bad, or at least not for a very long time. And we wouldn't have to have any degradation in the value of the food. Now, you might say, well, why can't you invent that? You seem to know a lot about it. Well, I probably could if that was what I'm supposed to do, but I'm also supposed to teach people so they can go out and do that. So people who are spending their lives maybe wasting their lives trying to make better refrigerators or something. <laughs> this might be a better better way of doing it, you can say. Now, 
idea, I came up with this idea a long, long time ago, but this idea is um, has been used, but in other worlds, not here. Earth, is, our technologies are pretty um, primitive, and they are based upon a lot of wrong understandings about how physics works, because we don't believe, the scientists in our world don't believe much in metaphysics, and they won't accept these other ideas even to experiment with them to see, like it's what I just gave as an example, see if it's right. Now, I know Wilhelm Reich and some of the people tried to work with things like this, and they kind of proved some stuff that I'm talking about, but they never invented anything that was, you know, like plug it in and there it goes, and then everybody would be using it and you wouldn't have any question about it. Even if they didn't understand it, if they had the right, right tools, they could probably use it for a while, then somebody would come back and try to figure out how it works. But unfortunately, that's where we are today. The, the resistance to these ideas is because people, by and large, that are science-oriented, have trouble buying into the God part. And if you start getting into these metaphysical ways of solving problems, you're kind of almost immediately faced with the idea, well, how come it's like that? And then you get into all the stuff I talked at the beginning of the show, of why evolution isn't quite right, and maybe some of our ideas about this or that aren't correct, and maybe all the stuff we think we don't, we don't. And maybe we're more confused and more misunderstood about a lot of stuff than than we ever believed. And that's the thing that's causing the problem. You see, people tend to be very egotistical these days, more so than ever before on Earth. And so to protect their own thought processes, they don't want to face these truths that I mentioned. It's a shame because there's real solutions. And honestly, I don't think it would take less than, I think it would take less than a year to invent something like this to work on a lot of different kinds of foods, and that would be affordable, certainly within the range, let's say, of a fairly sophisticated and expensive refrigerator that you wouldn't need anymore. And in this device, we'd use a very small amount of energy. I mean, it would... It, it would use a week's worth of, of energy that a fairly big refrigerator uses in a year. Wow. <laughs> That's an example. And so cost-wise, it would be very effective, very efficient to run, and maybe it would only cost, you know, a couple grand or something like that in U.S. dollars. And then people are going out and buying refrigerators that are not expensive of the place all the time. Oh, sure, you can buy one for under $1,000, too, but they're pretty small, and they don't last long, and they use a huge amount of energy or time. So you make up for the difference in all that. You know, a few years, you got to throw them away, and while you're using them, you, your electric bill comes every month, and the, the electric company says, thank you for running your refrigerator for so long, and here's your price, here's your fee for it. You know, and after a while, the fee starts adding up, you know, maybe only $30, $40 a month, but there's a lot of months <laughs> other device could run for decades without the without feeling. It, it would not require as much energy expenditure and it could be made extremely reliable because it doesn't have pumps and one thirty four A or four ten A or whatever it doesn't have all the stuff that is necessary to keep something cold. Now that doesn't mean 
that we might not want to have sometimes places to keep things cold. I'm not against ice cream. But I'm just saying that for the purposes, for the purposes now of general food preservation and health, this is being a great thing. Let's talk about the health side. I'm looking at my clock here, and boy, is it going fast. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. Let's talk about that health part. You know, um, I mentioned Fai the science of Fai Basically, that's a science to use herbs to uh, help people stay well and or to treat people for various illnesses using plants, but in a more scientific way than is presently used in the eastern part of the world. They've used it more on, well, this worked before trial and error. This worked before you put this with this and you probably get a good result. But they don't have a lot of science behind it. They don't know which pranic energies are changing, and they don't know which chi energies are using the balance, and that's the reason they use this herb or that herb and this amount and that quantity and that strength. And so the, it, it, that's all missing. And so that herbal science, which has been used for, for millennia, and it's a good thing, could be sophisticated to a new level, a new level. And you could, and this is a really interesting idea, you could take certain plants that are pretty good at doing some of this, and you can augment them, a new type of pharmacy. And, of course, we probably have the FDA within five minutes when we control this whole thing. But what you could do is you could change the the quote-unquote chronic and chief values of herbs that are kind of like what you're looking for, but you want to intensify this or change that. So it might treat against very serious kinds of illnesses. This is a little bit more sophisticated than a step or two beyond just trying to preserve food. Uh, but its value in terms of treating illnesses could be amazing, could be way beyond. What we're doing today, which is the Phi Chi principle, because we still have to go out and get the herbs, and they're all over the place in their pranic and chi values. First of all, they're grown in different places, and they're stored in different ways, and we know the value declines as you, if you don't store them correctly, and correctly is not freezing them. And, you know, you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff. And the strange thing about it that, the other thing that affects them is consciousness. If around high conscious people, food and, and herbs stay for decades, and around low conscious people, they may go bad in, in weeks or months. Isn't that strange? Because energy balance is not greater than its own. So you basically have a lot of factors here, but you could augment. You could augment the herbs if you understand the pranic values that you're looking for and by changing the face in it. And if you have right right motive, your own thought could be involved in that also shaping it. So we can get good thinkers and good people people of good motivation involved in the process. And we could make new alternatives to the terrible ones that presently are poison poisoning us from the pharmaceutical companies a new kind of science, something entirely different from what we're thinking about or doing today. It would be the advanced stages of IT science, if you want to call it that. Now, I've actually 
done a lot of thinking about this, but no direct experimentation because, uh, well, frankly, my time has been diverted by the dark side going, uh, trying to stop us from doing things that are like this. But with the time and the resources, and some of that will be money, uh, this could be done, and it could be done extremely effectively. Um, I also come up with ways to uh, and see and experience the etheric world and possibly directly communicate uh, in more sophisticated ways than it was done on Atlantis with the, with the astral world, although those things I don't think are beneficial for today's world because they'll be used wrongly and probably destructively. But nonetheless, this idea of, we'll say, enhancing uh, certain herbs to become super drugs that do amazing things uh, without causing side effects. Remember that the drugs we use today are really forceful. They push the pranic and especially chi energy around, usually indiscriminately, and so they affect some people okay, and others they do terrible things because they're, they're, they don't have flexibility. They just push, out of force. In the beginning, and when they need to be used for a short period of time, force is sometimes important. You've got a, you know, a terrible infection, you've got to get rid of a lot of bad uh, bacteria or virus instead of doing some terrible things. Maybe a few people die too. And so you've got to use a lot of force. But force over any significant period of time is destructive to the whole organism. So if you take chronic for chronic things, you take long-term use of drugs, they almost invariably lead to very bad effects that may ultimately be worse than the disease itself. The reactions to a long-term from the drugs may cause more damage than the disease would have ever caused and may eventually take the person's life. That would not be true if properly done with pranic uh, and chi uh, science that enhances what is already existing within herbs, and we make super herbs that we could put together in ways that would be something phenomenal, absolutely unbelievable to me. Then you can do sort of like the wiping and other stuff. You can do direct changes on the centers with electromagnetic phase correctly uh, energies. This is going beyond the 5G thing that I just mentioned, uh, like I said, I've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm throwing it in there maybe a little fast. Excuse me for doing that, but this, but this is a fascinating subject, and I think it should be covered at least as far as I'm going to try to get it. So that energy is more direct. The process which has been used in the past uh, is not scientifically accurate, and it doesn't, it doesn't deal correctly with the chi and pranic energies as they are defined in the seven subcategories. And so without that information and knowledge of arrays and what, what centers, etc., the machines are based almost entirely on trial and error, and then each person is a new trial and error situation or animal who's doing it like pets or any other animal. And so, so the purpose of this, and you can use them on plants too, we could directly affect the, the development of both plants and animals, etc., going to a purely uh, in a new field that we're growing, 
definitely cause genetic changes, by the way, if done from the inception of a plant, and the same would be true of people. The danger with it is you're getting into truly real modification of life. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to do it. I don't want you to think I'm making a value judgment about this. We're supposed to, human beings are supposed to eventually become godlike. We're supposed to be in control of life. But only as we create light and not darkness, and only as we increase consciousness and not create egotism and wild desires in people and all kinds of selfish aspects of cooperation and destruction. So we want to be careful because these same things that I'm discussing could be weaponized. In other words, you could go the exact opposite way, create fields around people that are deadly. Well, we already do that with nuclear devices and radiation, which is a kind of a hodgepodge of all kinds of uh, uh, electromagnetic and uh, sometimes subatomic energies that uh, interpenetrate and destroy people and things and life in general. Well, on, on a purely etheric electromagnetic level, if you reversed the process and made it into some, you know, let's get everybody's centers to be out of whack, it'd be like instantly making people dead, deathly ill, and within hours to days, they just drop dead. Enough said about that. So the problem with the good part about this is that before I would tell people how to do it, assuming I know how, is uh, first you got to make sure their consciousness is higher, high enough, so they won't reverse it and use it for the destruction of life, and especially us, like all life possible. And so this is a very dangerous thing but a very promising thing for maybe a century from now or two. We, and when it should be become understood is after there's enough consciousness to understand the basics and to apply it in ways that people show enlightenment and virtue in their creations and not destruction. This is the interesting parts about what I'm talking about tonight. And it's part of the reason that I haven't just written a whole bunch of material and sent it out to the world, put it up on the Internet, what the hell, uh, that about all this because to do so has terrible ramifications on the reverse side of life. And if you think plants that are, you know, friendly to terrible toxins, uh, that don't die from them so that we can poison the weeds around them is a bad idea. Could you imagine how bad the idea would be to understand how to distort the pranic and chi field around any kind of life and just instantly shine it on somebody like, you know, here's my, here's my pranic chi gun, shoot. And minutes, hours later, they just drop dead. Yeah, that would not be my idea. And there would be no, nothing. They would never know it. You wouldn't have any fallout. There would be nothing. That would be a very, very dangerous thing to bring about in the world as we know it right now. All right, so 
but the future is, the eventual future of this thing is that these sorts of things will be developed. Let's just pray that we all are better in our consciousness and in the way that we interact together in producing a more enlightened world before we have the ability to do the things I'm discussing. And again, this is within a hundred years of a tank from now. So and some of it could be just decades away. So it is a frightening thing. It'll start with some genetic changes, but eventually it's going to happen when people gain a much better understanding of these hidden energies that they don't yet understand. They will gain that understanding, hopefully, through creating themselves into more virtuous people, not through dealing it and using it just for darkness. Those are my hopes. I can't guarantee they're going to be that way. But I, but I myself and the others that I associate with are very responsible about this. And we don't just willy-nilly do or give out information that would be used destructively. Even if I cheat, that's true love, which is a far away from where we're talking about at the present moment. Okay, go back to our plants for a while. Give your brain a rest from that uh, I love that stuff. I, I, I'm intrigued by that. I could literally talk about that, all of that stuff, all night. Some of it, though, would be divulging things that I don't want to do, so I think, you know, this is what I can say, this is what I can't say. But plants in general uh, are supposed to, to keep developing, even without human beings. So let's, uh, let's move into talking about that so we, we have some understanding that they aren't just like, oh, well, we're done. Humans are here, so we don't change. Now, plants are changing. They still have a lot to do. Eventually, plants will gain uh, some elements of both a nervous system. I know that, that define, we'll have to redefine them. They will gain that. And a rudimentary brain, even in the astral world to some extent, they'll have that. They won't have a mental brain. But the thing that's most important about this is that they're going to become a cross between what we consider to be a plant today and some of the lower forms of animals. And so they're going to have some interesting qualities to them. They might be able to even move. I know, well, a plant is planted. They can get moved from wherever. They may be able to literally move, oh, maybe hundreds of yards in a day or something like that. I mean, it's not going to be a huge of mobility, but it's certainly significant, you know. That says, hey, I want to be next to this plant and other plant on the other side over there. I don't like that plant over there, but I like this one. You know? We get along better. Um, so, they're go- and this allows them to interact. Now, plants cannot interact except by the uh, what we call randomness of the process. For the most part, they just don't have that at the present time. Why is interaction so important eventually? Well, once plants become interactable, okay, their development increases many times faster, just like animals already have done. But they're going to still develop like plants and not like animals. And what the differences are going to be the following. Most of their growth will still come from their interactions with various forms of energy, both internally and externally, and not from the development 
office for themselves or anything like that. But what they're going to do is be able to work together to create all of the parts of what they need to be alive, and they'll be more symbiotic. Plants are already symbiotic if they're close enough to other plants, but that's somewhat based upon chance, uh, outside forces. This would be internally regulated now. A plant might be able to move itself, like I said, maybe 100 yards in a day, and that would allow it to get closer to other kinds of plants that it wants to interact with to create changes in the soil, the air, itself or themselves, and some of the chemistry in things like water and other stuff that is flowing around it. It may be able to do all those things, and the plants that will be able to do that may be here without our involvement in several centuries. Plants that are modified by human beings may be here in several decades that can do some of what I just described. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, because most people say, well, if it hasn't happened by now, why do you think it would happen? Well, because it's already happening in places like the astral world. And the astral world really is just, if it's happening there, it is almost certain to happen in some level here in the future. The astral world is a is dilated in time, so it has, it's ahead of us in terms of what we would see happening here. But eventually, we can think that a lot of that same stuff will go on here. Plants also will have very rudimentary types of thought, not too different from what we call creative imagination, and they'll have certainly a physical response with a rudimentary nervous system. Now, when is a plant nervous system going to look like in the future, um, here on Earth. Well, the first thing is the the system it's using right now, the stomata and and the ability to uh, osmotically compress and move uh, fluids through it, will will be copied in electromagnetic form, and it will develop cells that are just like our nerve cells, more rudimentary, certainly, that will move with the same kind of fluid dynamics that are used in a plant today. And those nerve cells will then do much of what nerves do in human beings, but not as fast. Plants will be slower because we function clearly in a complete astral and complete mental way, where plants will barely be able to communicate with just the lower astral aspects within themselves and have a rudimentary astral brain and an etheric rudimentary brain. Maybe some small physical composite would be possible in some plants. Uh, and there's some elements. You can see some plants moving, a very few of them, moving in this direction, by the way, in their development. But it's going to be something that is going to uh, happen uh, more or less as a group, and we'll see it emerging over the next century, if we just left plants alone, just leave them alone. They're just at that point where they can do some, we'll be able to do some of this based upon how the rays are changing and where we're moving and the whole thing. The other thing to consider here is I'm, I'm talking only about plants without us. Well, they're not going to be without us, I hope. I mean, you know, we're here and I don't, I'm hoping we're not going anywhere, but okay, let's say we're going to survive. 
that moment, then we will be involved in it. And we will accelerate it. Now, we may not accelerate it because we want the plants to to be able to rudimentarily think and have some nervous responses, nervous system responses. If we may fall into it more by accident than inside, through genetically changing something that we didn't think was going to have the result that's going to have. That's one possibility. We may actually deliberately choose it. When people hear this show, someone's going to say, I heard this guy talking about this crazy stuff on the radio, but you know, it's actually possible to happen. Yeah, I also know I have my life student too. Uh, so you know, it could it could be that, and they're gonna they're gonna possibly look at this thing and say, you know, he's not as crazy as he sounds. <laughs> we could probably do this. Now, again, the advantage of the plants is this cooperative interaction. The advantage is the human is a bit different. I I uh, I wrote this textbook called Life in Me. In there, I draw an advanced tree and talk about uh, others. And uh, the, the tree is able to move and follow the sun and provide shade to animals and people. The, the, the tree is also able to do all kinds of other interesting things with other plants and animals and plants, uh, including insect control and changes. So it could do a whole mess of stuff. It can also develop... Uh, Increased levels of sun, so, uh, sun protection, not just shading, but actually uh, in its uh, in its transpiration of, of uh, water to cool itself and cool the area around it, it can also contain a small amount of the sun blocking, UV blocking ingredient of A and B rays that prevents people from being sunburned within a hundred foot diameter around the tree and cool them at the same time and shade them if they're closer underneath the tree and provide food for people and, I mean, all of that. And the tree can also possibly move slowly, maybe an inch of it or something like that. And in a day, I think that it could be maybe 100 yards or so. But yet you get into this thing where uh, it could gradually be able to move its root system. Wow. It, it, it sounds impossible, you know, it's almost like some kind of cartoon when the trees get up and walk away. You know. But it could be able to do that. And so we may be looking at that as a real potential. Just imagine. And then give off light at night. Also, we're working with some plants that might be able to do some of that right now. And, and uh, maybe uh, be an insecticide to kill uh, mosquitoes. And we're working with that, too. We're actually, this is something we are doing. But the thing is, why mosquitoes? Well, mosquitoes actually cause a lot of people to suffer and die. Hundreds of millions of people. Really. Dengue fevers, there's four different kinds. Uh, malaria. I mean, this is a terrible... This is like, and it's, a, it's all over the place. It's terrible. So... You can get rid of a lot of mosquitoes by doing that. Also, you could genetically modify the mosquitoes too. To maybe not be able to carry. Certainly, an interesting possibility. I'm going to give myself a little bit of it. Hold on. Got to get my voice back here so that I can keep talking for the rest of the show. All right. 
So just a fascinating part about this is that this this part of the plant kingdom is probably going to do some of this itself over hundreds of years, and we can cut it down to decades if we choose to interact properly through all the things that I'm talking about. Some of it will be genetic, but other parts of it could just be electromagnetically modified, <laughs> changing prana and chi characteristics and making the plant be able to do things, which will include herbs as well. So all of this is a fascinating subject, tremendously fascinating. And uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about the synthesis of food. That's coming. But here's the important thing. You've got to have food not just synthesized in biochemical ways, but also in energy ways so that the food contains the right balance of prana and chi. That may be the biggest problem because what will happen initially is the synthesized food that people, some people will create will cause people to get sick and die. And they won't understand why. It could put a bad taste, that's a kind of a double entendre, into a number of people's mouths because they don't, wouldn't want to use food that makes them sick. And then all of a sudden it'll be banned and you know, nobody will ever understand what really happened. So my hope is that we can synthesize food, but at the same time keep the balance in the prana and chi within the foods so that all of that is part of the synthesized food. Part in the beginning of synthesized food will come from the uh, plants, which we are taking the nucleotides and changing them into, into, very, into various uh, types of proteins so that they resemble some foods. Not too successful as far as taste is concerned and somewhat unsuccessful in prana and chi. People don't like things that are imbalanced in prana and chi because they taste either acetic or no taste and they lack the texture properties as well. So one good thing about it is that since we're not going to be using sophisticated means in the beginning probably to determine the right righteousness of uh, a particular synthesized food, then the best thing is that we won't like it and that company will go out of business before it kills too many people or makes them sick because it doesn't have the right balance. The best thing would be to make sure the balance is there in, in the very beginning of the manufacturing process, even if you're using existing, existing plant proteins to make stuff, so that you end up with a food that is delicious and at the same time is healthy. And the two go hand in hand and remember that before you start eating a bunch of stuff that you can gag on but say, well, it's good for you, right? Looks like the numbers are okay. But if it doesn't taste right, the numbers are not okay. All right, because we are sophisticated. Our, our bodies tell us when the prana and chi is off. And especially if it's contaminated with bacteria, you can almost immediately tell from the acidic issues. Uh, but a lot of people ignore that, unfortunately. And then there's certain types of bacteria, mold, and viruses that we don't taste very well. We can't tell from taste very well that they exist because they don't change the food to become different in, in the pH as much as they change other characteristics which we aren't familiar 
and that's what's causing my mad cow disease and stuff in brains because those things we can't taste, but they are these sub COVID viruses and other viruses uh, that uh, are these new types of illnesses are really serious because they're extremely small and they don't quite work the way viruses do. And that what they're doing actually is they are affecting the prana and chi factors that we don't know about yet. <laughs> or on a general scale, uh, I should say that medicine doesn't recognize Western medicine. So, you know, we can't, we can't treat the diseases because we don't understand them and we don't understand how they're actually caused. We found some elements of the thing that seems to cause them, but we don't understand what it is. They give it different names depending upon what country you live in. But, you know, it, it's weird because it's like we fantasize things based upon our prior understanding instead of trying to seek the truth of what it really is until later, after nothing works, based upon our models to, to treat the disease. That's usually the pattern that we follow, most unfortunately. Plants were designed to be health givers after they also are food givers and provide oxygen and uh, and nutrients in soil and changes in chemistry and improvements in soil chemistry and places where bacteria and fungi can live and prosper around the roots of them. There's so much that plants do that we don't appreciate and that we forget sometimes they're doing as well. It's a critical element to it. Plants also supply, supply generally the habitat for almost all animals. And that's another factor that is critical in understanding the life of plants. They don't just supply food. They supply shelter and environmental change. So like our great tree that I was talking about, well, some of them aren't as good as that tree at doing it, but they do some parts of it, right? A shade, they can provide that. Warmth in, from, from heat, or warmth from cold and uh, protection, some coolness and protection from transpiration and otherwise from excessive heat. So they do all those things and then they uh, further provide uh, a, we'll call it, uh, an ability to almost be like clothes are to us. I mean, uh, some, some small animals and insects rely upon plants to be able to keep them wrapped in the wind and the elements, etc. And it's it's a it's more than just a question of shelter. Almost it's like they are they're they're clothing themselves in some elements of some plants, some some types of animals. So in what we're talking about, it is it's 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 kind of like looking at it from the standpoint that if we didn't have all of the variety of plants we have it's almost impossible to have ever had animals, and then that animals, without animals, we wouldn't be here because although we didn't evolve, per se, from animals, we used some of the elements of animals as part of our lower body, especially with the physical. So we borrowed a lot of it, but our the other parts of us didn't come from the animals, but it doesn't matter. One needs the 
it all blends together. It's in the plant play the critical element in that situation. Now, I want to uh, go back to more towards the beginning of the show and talk about some other planets. I said I'd go in a bit more about that and before we run out of time. I, I, I'm so fascinated by all this. They don't know what to talk about next because it's like, well, got these things. But the, the, in, in other parts of our galaxy and in places that we're eventually going to visit, uh, I don't know if we, those of us who are alive today, will visit, but our later incarnations might. And, and when we get to see other planets, of course, and we get to visit them, the first thing that is going to be uh, we're going to be most shocked about is how plant life is specialized in ways that are not the same as on Earth because of the ray differences. Remember, so we, we, we have plants that are very strongly third ray, uh, very strongly influenced by, by the ray of the planet itself. But there are other planets that aren't like that. If you go to a fourth ray world, which is kind of interesting because that's a world where balance of of energy and spirit is the focus of the ray, uh, that type of world is a world of great beauty and uh, would have within it plants that are more interactively in, uh, interdependent and would be in better balance most of the time at, with themselves and with animals and there were people if there were people. So you would have that kind of world. And in our perspective, going to such a place would have uh, would be like going on vacation from the hostile forces of this world. Uh, it wouldn't be a world where there would be very many plants that would be dangerous to either themselves or to animals or people. And the animals, because it's a forthright world, would not be as competitive or hostile. So that would be a nice change, actually. I wouldn't mind going. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Uh, because um, it's it's the kind of place that a lot of people wish for. It doesn't mean that Earth couldn't be that way, even being a third planet. It, it just means that initially, the planet moves in that direction, unlike Earth, it's slower. How much slower? Or oh, double the time if you're a fourth-right world compared to a third. So uh, a huge amount more time is needed to develop life on the planet and to do it in a way that uh, would be eventually developing human life, which is what the planets are supposed to do if they're dense physical. Not all will, and not our me- all are meant to even but they're supposed to have at least the potential. Now, we we could take a planet like that and use it as an extension of our development. By the time we could travel to such a planet and do that, that could be, it could be hundreds of light years, thousands. From where we are now, we, we would have to travel in, interdimensionally into higher dimensional realms where time and space pro, pro, provides us the ability to get to places within a very reasonable period of time, and to do so without harming ourselves or anyone else. And once we have that ability, what we're going to discover is that some of these worlds are wonderful places to uh, visit and maybe even develop our, our 
expansion of our civilization. Some of them will already have humans on them. And in those cases, we'll probably uh, have the consciousness by that time to not harm life on that planet, that human life, and not to contaminate it, not to destroy it with some crazy concoction of forces that we bring ourselves. Because we couldn't be that forceful and make it that it would take a considerable level of enlightenment from where we are today to be able to reach there then, whenever that then is going to be. So now we're not going to be off conquering the galaxy and destroying other worlds because we won't get there. There won't be a technology great enough to reach there uh, before we destroy ourselves if that's the way we're moving. So the good news is it's sort of self-protected. But... I'm assuming that we won't do that. And we, if we get there, we're going to find that the plant life is so supportive of life in general that uh, unlike the life here, where plant life is into strong differentiation, the key for life there will be inter-development, uh, inter-penetration uh, of life development and sharing uh, and a great deal more of that, and cooperation in the physical world so that it would be much more enlightened than where it is here on Earth. But also with an astral development of plants that would be peculiar to us because the plants would have strong feelings and be able to communicate those feelings and uh, allow us to communicate with them. Now, plants on Earth may not get to that kind of interaction, but on a fourth-ray world, you're almost expected to be the case. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, what, what, when can I sign up for that? Well, it might be lifetimes from now. I can't tell you. It depends a lot on what we're going to choose to do uh, with our existence here now. Is it all possible? Oh, sure. It's definitely possible and even almost certain that we could do it if we don't destroy ourselves before we do do it. And the good news is that we would destroy ourselves if we were that bad and not make it there to do destruction to others. And rather, we just destroy us than to, to bring it on to all these other planets that are in better shape than we are. Okay, so what you would experience would be a planet where plants have sentiency at a level that we can understand and feel and that would be indirectly involved with us. We could communicate the feelings of the planet and them with us. And the planet would be incredibly beautiful. The beauty would improve our senses and that of the plants back and forth because that's what beauty does. And uh, it would be a remarkable place for consciousness and it can grow. Diversity? Not quite as much. I know that people, scientific writers and some movies like Avatar, have joined the idea of planets, of a fourth-rate planet, with the existence of what we project about our own world and try to join them together. It's not impossible for a world to be like that, but uh, very unlikely because you're bringing together some very different elements and trying to make both of them exist in one place, and that would not be a natural occurrence. 
could you design it that way? Yeah, I don't know who would or why. It's possible. Human beings have tremendous creative ability. I guess if you wanted to take the worst parts of a third-rate planet and put it together with the best parts of a fourth, or maybe just the best parts of both, and try to bring it together, it's a possibility, too. Of course, in that particular movie, um, I guess that Cameron, uh, would, did not get the, the balance. And although the planet looked beautiful in some respects, it wasn't a, there was still all of the forceful aspects of Earth, Earth-like, uh, put into what looked like could be a fourth way of world. And uh, most unfortunate. But, I mean, that's one person's creativity. It's, it's, it's science fiction. And a great movie from the standpoint of uh, just being science fiction. It's, it's interesting science fiction. With some interesting messages. Some of it misplaced. Some of it pretty accurate. Okay. So, uh, in the fourth ray world that I'm discussing, or, and I'll go through with some other ones too if I have time. This, this would the dominant issue of, of the plant life would be to bring about uh, almost a perfect balance of spirit and form in all life. So, if you could imagine this, and it's hard to imagine, the animals would be almost totally non-hostile or aggressive. And people uh, would be uh, attempting to use their civilization to bring about almost a cathartic nature to all life so that it all blossoms and grows together in the best way possible, not for one or ten or a hundred, but for almost everything that was lying on the planet. And it would be something that would be like almost a portrait of beauty created by humans within all the nature of the world. Uh, Certainly nothing there to say is terrible or wrong in doing. I'm wholeheartedly in favor of that. And we could go to worlds if we can get there. Um, And assuming we can, we probably won't have the hostility and craziness we have today and uh, immerse ourselves in these experiences. A lot to bring back from those worlds back to Earth to improve things here as well. So it could be a very uh, beneficial kind of thing to do. And I can tell you that we are meant to do that, provided we can enlighten ourselves enough to even get there without destroying ourselves or something else. And that uh, if we do are doing that, this place would be also amazingly helped and developed. Not like it is today, of course, but it would be much, much more enlightened. And that's possible within hundreds of years from now. So in the next lifetime or two, we could be seeing huge improvements from where we are today. I'm very optimistic, and maybe we will destroy ourselves before we get there, but I hope not. I hope instead we will see that we respect life and we particularly use our plants in this world, here and now and in the near future, for improvement and enlightenment, not to be destroyed, not to destroy others, and not to 
up to us to devise and come up with some kind of, we'll call it, uh, balanced answer. And maybe going to other worlds will help us further along. Now, what about if I use the fourth right world? Let's talk about a first right world. There's almost, there's very little first right on Earth. We should understand this. I know we talk all the government's first right. Very little of the time is the first right ever even focused on the planet, and then only for literally a few decades at most. The reason being, it is so unfortunately destructive when you have so much darkness in humanity. We almost instantly use it to create more wars and more destruction in every kind of thing. And so it's not a good thing. It's, it's supposed to be creative, but the opposite side of it is destruction. And we tend to go towards the constructive, destructive side than the constructive side most of the time. That's a terrible outcome if you think about it. Okay, so let's assume we're going to a first-rate world where plants, you know, are developed already. And that world uh, would be pretty amazing because the plants themselves would become creative in the process. Not just uh, sensitive with some nervous system ideas, and stuff, but they would actually have creative parts of their own existence. They could change themselves in various ways, genetically, we'll call it, and possibly change some of the energies they're exchanging back and forth to improve not just their existence, but the existence of all the other things, plants and animals, and if there are people there as well, that they interact with. Now, that's a little hard for... I mean, now we're getting into more science fiction kind of thought for most people because we just don't see plants like that. But they're in a first-rate world. That's a good explanation of how they would be. No, it's hard to understand that. It would be. And they would further further, uh, be very involved with the creation or co-creation of life throughout the whole planet. So you would see the plants being concerned, if you can imagine, uh, about the life that is dependent upon the plants, just like they are here. But the plants themselves would have concern about it and would attempt to improve the levels that they are supplying in food, shelter, and energy exchange uh, with all other life forms. That would be a different world, for sure. One that we would have a lot of trouble interpreting, even as we thought. We wouldn't quite know what to think about it. We might even want to believe that there's something behind the plants doing it. You know, like, how can the plants be creative? They're not creative. But, you know, we probably say, well, it must be someone with a supercomputer that's working on the plants. But that wouldn't be true because it would be a different world because the focus of the planet itself would be on the first right. These are pretty rare worlds. But I'm just using some some stuff that's kind of cool to talk about because it's so unusual. There aren't too many. So imagine that, going to a planet where the plants are creative like advanced animals are here, even like some people. That would just be pretty amazing. And they wouldn't necessarily be destructive because if the planet itself is once in the first right, and if it's somewhat enlightened, it doesn't mean that the plants are any more destructive, probably less so than they are here on Earth. 
They're just using the first ray more as a creative device for helping to develop their senses and senses and everything else, their interactions, and all of the parts of life that they interact with would be so effective. It'd be amazing. I would definitely like to visit there, you know, if I have to. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I'm ready to go. All right, let me take a, another example. I think I've got room time-wise, maybe, for one more example. Uh, let's take a, a seventh ray uh, planet. This is a really different. In the seventh ray, which is, by the way, very uh, adaptable with the third ray, plants will be quite concerned about, uh, let's say, conservation and conserving all energies and helping life to do the same. And they'd be extremely well-organized, if you can imagine that in the use of their energy, better than plants are on Earth, as you find almost no organization on, on plants on Earth except for the species itself, but it doesn't help organize anything else. Whereas on this planet, that's what the plants will be doing. And economizing the use of energy in general for all life. So the plants would provide a higher nutrient value for each particular plant. You would have to use less, eat less to get the same values, and they would be more compatible with the other plants together. Cooperation and sharing. It's a kind of light that would be produced in that particular world. Uh, a higher level of efficiency would be present among the plants in terms of their physical forms. Uh, certainly, another interesting planet to visit. The way it would interact with other kinds of life is to provide other kinds of life uh, more food for less effort to obtain the food through the plants, whatever way that might be. Remember, eventually in the food chain, something's got to eat the plants before it gets eaten, right? So it's going to be more efficient in this seventh ray world for plants to be uh, eaten and used by eaten and or used by uh, the animals that are in step with or that use the seventh ray with the plants as well. Not all animals will be along that way focused, but a lot will because the planet is dominated by the seventh ray. If we were to arrive in this world, we would find it we would find new plants that would be much better efficiency wise in terms of food for us and the animals. And we would find that the plants are amazingly cooperative and organized in helping to develop more plants and to help to serve animals and people as well. And they'd be like our allies <laughs> of that concept anyway. Not a bad idea. And we might take some of these plants and bring them back here to Earth and even use them in cooperation with the third ray focus of plants here and uh, that would actually work okay. They probably wouldn't be forceful towards each other because they would, there, there's a certain bonding that takes place between the third and seventh ray life itself. So interestingly, and that could be a very, a very fascinating world to go visit and to get plants from and to learn a lot about. Uh, again, sign me up. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and uh, maybe not this life. The next one, too. We'll, we'll, we'll all get the experience. It's fascinating how, 
going to come, no matter what we do. And it's, and it's going to come in a way that I hope will be good for us, will be beneficial towards us. It will make it so that we will find a, a, a new, better way of existing. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that's enough for other worlds for tonight. Although, like I said, I could do a, I really could do easily a program just talking about other worlds and all kinds of life. I find that fascinating. And there's a lot of things to consider and think about. I'm sure that there, there are books I could, volumes I could write on, on that, that area. All right, so coming back to my subject tonight, which is about plastic. So the, I, I think I'm going to finish tonight with the idea that if we can improve uh, in the shortest term possible, the product value and, and um, uh, cheap value of food in general, and that starts with the plant kingdom, we would do a tremendous service to ourselves. And we've been doing a great disservice in the last century about this very subject. So some of the things we probably I've covered about the question of freezing and all that business, of course, okay. But some of the things in terms of directly involving ourselves with plants include the, the following ideas. Uh, and you've heard of this, and I don't want you to think it's crazy, because it's not. It would be appropriate, even improve, an improvement, to play music that is beautiful and helpful for the particular kind of plant we're growing around the plants. Different plants will respond to different music based upon what kind of tea and product sub-values sub and energies they're using. Certain types of plants respond to different kinds of music. Better. Playing music with plants improves the quality of the product and tea in the plants significantly. It allows the plant to become healthier. The other thing we can do is to show affection towards plants, and especially how we feel around plants and think about them does affect them. So having people grow plants that are like that, and also introducing animals that love plants as well, there are some that do that, birds are like that, um, brings in divonic energy. And the divonic energies help the plants to grow better and improves them. The music does the same, by the way. Uh, divonic uh, beings love music. They even create, some of them create their own. But they love to participate, if they are creating music, with existing music. So, just so you know, play your, play your tunes for your plants. You know, they'll enjoy it. Uh, and, but not just the plants themselves. I'm talking about divining things that service the plants and help the balance the chronic energies. You probably didn't know that, but that's what's happening. So if we want to be really uh, helpful with our plants right now today, we can do this about all the inventions I suggested in the earlier part of the show. Now, this is more dependent upon other factors than just music. You've got to have a beautiful area. You've got to clean up all the messes and get rid of any garbage or mess. And you need to also have the right attitude. You want to have someone or people creating beauty because they want it to be beautiful. The desire just to have more tasty food isn't going to work. It's got to be, you've got to want it to be 
more beautiful, and as you create more beauty, divine beings come in. And of course, you can go to some of the other shows I've done on divine beings. I'm not going to have time to cover about them now, but I'm just talking about them. Being and when they come in, the plants will be improved tremendously in their chi and pranic balances without us having to go through the technology issues, etc. Now, once you get that going, okay, so hopefully we're on the same page with this, then you're looking for another, we'll call it the next step in how the plants are going to cooperate because the divinic beings aren't starting to communicate with the other plants other than the ones that they are just there to serve. That's part of their job and with the brute souls and the cells of the brute souls all together and within a matter of weeks or less, there should be some immediate, almost immediate, improvement in the quality of the plants. And eventually, the long run, the food they produce and all the other qualities of plants that they do, do including the soil enhancement, etc., will go up dramatically as you get the collective energies and energy beings that are serving. The other thing that the energy beings do is they straighten out problems in uh, the chronic problems in the past where you have over under uh, acetic or basic soils and other things that are hard to straighten out. You can try to buy chemicals and try to do it that way. It doesn't work very well. But these beings do it naturally over months of time. They actually are able to change the root system characteristics of every different plant in a particular area and get the soil to be more consistently at the right pH level for a particular kind of plants that are there. And at the same time, to even have the right kind of consistency for water to run through it without a clumping or, or drowning the roots or, or starving the roots because it's too sandy and, fall, and goes away too quickly. It actually will change all of those characteristics in months of time, faster than most other things you can do. Now, should you use fertilizer? Sure, you can work with fertilizers and other stuff if you think they might help. But the divine beings are actually better at this. And if you give them extra fertilizer, they'll actually use some of it and then ignore other parts in the plant. So the odd thing is, uh, even putting the fertilizer on isn't the answer. Making it available so the divine beings can make, can they make the choices is the answer. And this is a critical thing that is unfortunately misunderstood and most of the time not done, and particularly in the United States. I know there's other parts like in Europe and England and other places where they do kind of think about things like this, but here we don't. Now, it's too bad because this part of plant life is very important. And it needs to be addressed because it's what we can change first to get the most amount with the least amount of us having to change all our technologies and a lot of other stuff to do the things I said earlier in the show, which is a bit more complicated, kind of interesting, right? But this stuff can be done right away. Uh, beauty is such an important part of it that You've almost got to take a big, you know, walk around wherever you're talking about. If you've got a garden or if you've got a whole orchard or whatever it is, and say, how do I make this place more beautiful? And be particularly uh, aware of those things that 
in a feng shui sense, and get a book on feng shui if you need to understand it, but that's chi. That's, that is blocking the chi. Now, some things that block chi have nothing to do with plants. Weird as it sounds, you can have something blocking the chi that is just an old rusty bucket. Or you can have something else that's blocking the chi that is a bunch of weeds that have, you know, uh, that are all messed up and grown together in a thicket that is, is just ugly and it is interfering with the flow of chi. Another thing that can do it is all kinds of physical, looks like creations from fences to if they're if they're ugly and if they're in poor quality or if they're damaged, those things will adversely affect the chi. I know you're know, saying, "Oh, what guy's nuts? Why? Why would a rusty bucket affect a plant?" It does. If it does, you just got to go out there and test it. If you don't believe me, then run some tests. You know, one part of the yard has got a rusty bucket; the other part's all cleaned up, and see which side does better. An experiment. If you don't think I'm right, check it out. Find out. The other thing that needs to be done is the plants need help. And since I can't at this point do much movement themselves, you've got to trim them, you've got to uh, tie them up, you've got to shade them. There's all kinds of things that are necessary. And when you do those things, again, the divonic energies will respond positively. And they'll become more helpful if you're being helpful. Don't try to directly involve yourself with their job, though. Be a sidekick. I'll go put a... I'll shade the plant. But don't try to have a discussion with the divinic beings that are supposed to be helping the plant. They don't like that. And uh, you're likely going to cause yourself harm as well as the plant's harm. So don't try to mess with plants that way because you shouldn't. Let the beings alone, and if you think you see them, just look at them through the corner of your eye. Don't even look directly at them, because they can sense that, and they don't like that. Just let them be. Let them do their job, and appreciate them, love them, but don't communicate in any way, other than just your love, and smile, and helping in whatever way, as an assistant, but not go and say, well, let's have a conversation. I would like it if you would do this and that. Don't do that. That's a very uh, intrusive uh, and violating type of behavior that they take offense to. And remember this, that in working with plants in general, they are extremely sensitive but in a different time frame from us. Their sensitivity is in hours and days. Ours is in seconds and minutes. So we're out of sync with their sensitivity. They have a high level of sensitivity through their divinic energies helping them particularly. But their sensitivity is time distorted to us. So we don't notice they have any sensitivity to us. They have no sensitivity sentiency at all, and yet they are sentient beings. And even the divinic beings that are helping them are sentient, which is hard for us to understand that part, because that's a whole other sub-kingdom that we're not familiar with. 
unless you've been listening to some of my prior shows, and then it might make some sense. So in these cases, we want to be careful because the improvement in the brain kingdom comes from us not getting involved sometimes, not doing certain things sometimes. It's okay to fertilize, but don't go out and say, okay, all you divine beings, stand and listen. I just fertilized. Now it's your job. You've got 20 minutes. Get to work. I'm being exaggerated. But yes, that would be definitely not helpful. And it would be no different than trying to get a bunch of wild animals to uh, have a uh, party and uh, participate in the way that you wish to you petting them and then being affectionate or something. It's so crazy. And these, these things are far more distant and care to be left alone more than most wild animals do. So that's the kind of problem that people pose with the belief system that they have a right to involve themselves with that subkingdom and they don't. None of our business to know what their business is. Our business is to cooperate from the outside and to help and serve by creating more beauty, more balance for the things we're familiar with, and then let them do their job on their own and not try to force them to do one thing or another. Or even to try to find out what they're doing. That's really, you know, they don't care for that either. They don't want us doing almost anything if we can help it or they can help it. So hopefully that will make some sense. Now, if you really work hard, and I'll tell you this, uh, let's say you have an herb garden, Let's say you you have an herb garden and you want the herbs to be the most effective herbs possible. You can can do some of the other stuff I said, like the music, etc., or you can go out and even have a conversation in general with the plants and that with the divinic things. You can let the divinic energies know how you feel by talking to the plants and showing some kindness to them. And if you think about what you want the herbs to be able to do, remember I said energy follows by fire and stuff, then the herbs with the plants can have some guidance through what you're picturing in your mind, particularly like creative imagination. So that's a good way to go. Don't try too much mental thought. It won't, won't work with it. But if you can creatively imagine how you want the plants to create the herbs in a certain pattern, in a certain way, so that they will affect certain centers more than others and do certain things. If you understand how to do it, that's okay to do. Just don't direct it directly at the energy beings, but direct it at the plants. Believe it or not, that will help. That will get the plants to actually produce more of the kind of chi and tonic energies that will be best suited for the herbs that you're seeking to use in a certain way. You just got to let them know what you need. You can just picture those ways in your head. You don't have to use the structure of mental thought, because as a matter of fact, that will interfere. So instead, you want to use what I will call to be pictures in your astral body of the way you can see it working inside the body of animals or people, or maybe other plants, so that you have the right kind of herbal balance for what you're seeking to do in whatever you're trying to produce. You can do the same thing in terms of food value and the same thing in terms of nutrition. You can do do all of this at the same time and get some better results 
through your creative imagination, because plants can understand that over time. If you imagine this hour, they may not know till almost the next day, but at least that's how they work. They probably will know it later in this, but it depends on the plant and how much the dilation issues are affecting it. Yep, it's about that time. We are running out of time. Yeah, I could have talked a lot more about all these things, but I hope tonight we've at least got some idea of the plant kingdom and development of life better down than ever before. And I hope tonight's show has really been fun and interesting because it was supposed to be. I was looking for some way of joining this together so it would be a new kind of way of looking at plants in general. We are out of time for right now. And until next week, this has been Niles McFarlane for Wildlife Day.